Hi, and welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Tuesday, November 12th, 2019. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah Oh. And today we're excited to talk with Brian Tremont. Brian is managing partner of Wilkinson Barker Nauer, a top-tier law firm, according to Chambers and Legal 500. Brian offers strategic counsel to Fortune 100 companies, trade associations, and small and mid-sized telecommunications and media companies on all aspects of communications law and regulation. Brian has also served as chief of staff and senior legal advisor for FCC Chairman Michael Powell. His other top-level FCC gigs have included senior legal advisor to Commissioners Kathleen Abernathy and Harold Furchgott-Roth. He's been recognized as one of the nation's top communications lawyers. If there's a list, he's on it, including 2016 Lawyer of the Year in Communications Law and a Top 10 Washington, D.C. Super Lawyer, 2017 Lawyer of the Year in Media Law, 2000, was named in 2017 to the inaugural Legal 500 Hall of Fame, and Lawyer of the Year in the 2020 edition of Best Lawyers in America, which is amazing because it's not even 2020 yet. So, And although there's no award for it, Brian is also known throughout the telecom world, regardless of your economic or political leanings or company you work for or represent, as not just a super insider with unmatched knowledge, but also the friendliest, most helpful, and most honest person around. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for speaking Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. So we thought we'd start off with an area that there's been a lot of talk about, which is C-band. I've heard of it. Yes, some people have. So why don't you actually, why don't you just give a quick background of what C-band, what the issues are, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. So C-band is a remarkable opportunity for the United States to lead on mid-band spectrum policy. It's critical for 5G that the spectrum be utilized for wireless broadband. The challenges are in some ways unique, but in also ways, in many ways, very familiar. For many years, the C-band has been used by satellite providers to connect, in many cases, content companies to, well, their content, to be accurate. And by most people's accounts, that use is probably not the most efficient or highest valued use for that 500 megahertz of spectrum. And so the commission has identified that under Chairman Pai's leadership and has been working towards figuring out ways to convert that spectrum to a higher valued use. It's not a dissimilar experience than the ones we've gone through to convert federal government users to commercial broadband spectrum, wireless broadband spectrum, or to convert the broadcasters in a during the incentive auction or the, re, the channels, uh, what about 60 to 69 and 70 to 79, those proceedings. So it's a, it joins a long progression of an un, a seemingly never-ending challenge to allow Spectrum to rise to its highest and best use after prior administrations of both parties, for that matter, have adopted very restrictive uses. So that's the challenge presented. There's a lot of moving parts because you have the satellite providers who provide the connectivity. You have the customers who are actually not the licensees, most often the content companies, often broadcasters, cable companies. And then you have the wireless industry. It's very, very eager to, to buy up the spectrum and to invest in the, our 5G future as a country. And because of where we are in overall, the overall spectrum landscape, this is one of the rare opportunities we have at mid-band to make 5G spectrum available. Recall at a broader level, 5G requires spectrum in a lower, mid, and upper bands. The lower band, the United States has done a nice job with, well, most recently with the incentive auction. In the upper bands, we've done a good job in making millimeter wave available. Where we've really struggled is the mid band. There are some opportunities there, but but the C band is really the key one for us to maintain global leadership. So it seemed early on there was an agreement that we would at least in some way compensate the, the current users of the spectrum. I want to come back to that. But, but most of the controversy has been, at least recently, has been 
for one, how to do it, how much sort of incentive do yeah. the satellite providers need to, to, to leave or um, give up some of their spectrum. And also, kind of b- below the surface, it's always seemed to be, how do we get to 300? How do we get to 300 megahertz? So, you know, talk about that, that controversy uh, and, and also maybe, you know, where did the 300 target number come from, even though that's nothing official? Right. Well, I guess I'd start with the 300 number. And, and I think, you know, the, the C-Band Alliance, which was a coalition of satellite companies, came forward with a proposal that made about 200 available. In some ways, I think 300 became the number because it's more than 200. <laughs> if they had come with 300, they might have ended up at 400. I don't exactly know. But I, I think in TPI, I um, think you institutionally will be sympathetic to this idea, which is I think the, the economics should dictate how much spectrum they give mm-hmm. up. And this tripartite structure, that is to say the satellite companies versus their customers versus this trusted wireless industry has made the traditional kind of economic interactions very challenging because the customers have been seemingly the most reluctant to make this change. But in reality, if the people who are providing the service to them view it as uneconomic to keep providing the service to them, then they probably shouldn't have the service anymore. <laughs> so I think there's an economic answer to how much it'll be. And I think to the commission's credit, a lot of the work they've done has been trying to drive towards that solution. As for the first part, which is the notion about where should the money go? I find this a, a little bit frustrating because we've been to this rodeo a number of times during my time at the commission and afterwards. This notion that we're going to try to fence off every example of windfall in the spectrum market is, is insanity. And, it's, it, and to my mind, it, it can lead to some demagoguery in terms of how the policy rolls out. I love auctions. I think it's been one of the greatest innovations the country has ever known in terms of spectrum policy and indeed the world. And the incentive auction was a great example of creative solutions in that regard. But I don't think that it should trouble people that companies invest in spectrum and then they get additional rights or their uses change and they make more money. I think that is what markets are about. Sometimes people bet and win. Sometimes people bet and lose. We want to encourage people to invest in their spectrum rights and to let it evolve to its highest and best use. And if we're constantly trying to catch up in terms of what the windfall is, I think it's a very complicated and likely to cause delay and ultimately harm the economy. I think an even uh, a more blunt way to put that from an economist's perspective is that windfalls really don't matter from, the, from an economics perspective, right? It's just a transfer of money, and we just want that spectrum to go into its highest value use. On the other hand, windfalls really annoy people. Is there any way for deciding what's the right amount of money that will help get an incumbent out of a band? Well, you would traditionally, you know, I've written some about this and there's been a fair amount of work done on this. You know, I think there's a calculus to be done about when the most economic thing is to take the spectrum away from people and compensate the incumbent versus to grant the incumbent the rights. And I think that's a calculable conversation to be had. I don't know that that's the one we're having right now. I think we're right now having a conversation about what we need to do politically to get this done. I don't know that that's the wrong conversation to have, but because I do think getting it done is probably the top imperative and speed is important here. I agree with you about the notion that it's, it's just a complicated question, but it is knowable. There have been hearings on the Hill about it, so there's congressional interest. Why are politics involved? Why, why is Congress interested uh, in CBAN? So I, I teach a spectrum management course at the University of Colorado, and I also teach one at the university, a Catholic university. And I ask my students this question. I say, why would Congress be so interested in spectrum? And why does spectrum keep getting included in things like the middle class tax relief act? And the answer, of course, is money. And if you are sitting on Capitol Hill and you have the ability to raise 
revenue that you can then spend, it becomes a very appealing political conversation to have. In this case, I think the fact that some of the satellite companies are largely foreign affiliated has further contributed to some of the political intensity around these issues. But it is, uh, yes, it's a very popular topic on Capitol Hill. And and the constituencies involved, I should say, the wireless industry is obviously critical to, critical to economic growth in the country, leading on 5G has been shown to be tremendously important to the overall economy as we let on 4G. So that, that constituency is very interesting getting this done quickly. The, the broadcasters and content companies who receive the services are also very politically connected and receive critical information over, the, over these airwaves. And so they also have been expressing concern about what the repack would look like. So there's a lot of pretty influential parties who are talking to their representatives, and, and that is prompted all the attention. So it sounds like they care mostly about two things. One is to make sure that they get as much or more local coverage as they always have. And uh, uh, sorry, the TV and maybe radio, but TV primarily news coverage. And also that they, they worry about the windfall issue because they would like to see more money going to the treasury. Yeah. And so I would like to think they'd also worry about 5G leadership and continuity service. But, you know, that's true. Would, those two things might also be that. We, we would like to think that it's <laughs> maybe too cynical. Then. Uh, <laughs> So let me ask a a sort of a a process question that also has no real answer, um, or it has an answer, but it's it's shrouded in in complicated, pragmatic decisions. So we've decided that the C-band spectrum will go for for licensed spectrum. But there are two other proceedings happening now as well for 5.9 gigahertz that that was one point set aside for auto safety and still is, and then 6 gigahertz which was in some ways similar to, to C-band uses, but yeah. not, not exactly. And those two, the general belief is that they'll go to unlicensed. Now, without expressing any preference for unlicensed versus licensed, I mean, you can express that preference if you'd like. How does it happen that that deal is made, that one is going to go for licensed and another is going to go for unlicensed, given that, I should add in a, a caveat, that we don't yet have any good market mechanism for making that decision. That's right. So at some, I mean, so the regulator, as much as we want to say the regulator shouldn't be making choices about how the spectrum is going to be used, we haven't yet figured out a way to avoid that choice. Well, and there's been, as you know, there's been some work done on this about whether or not there's some way to create a mechanism that the market would determine when it's licensed versus unlicensed. I think there, there are certainly theoretical models that would allow you to do that. The unlicensed community has never been particularly interested in pursuing <laughs> those models, uh, even when the commission has facilitated that possibility. You know, the <laughs> the vehicular communication band is particularly interesting because I was at the commission when we first allocated that spectrum for that use. Mm. And 20 years Not on. many people admit that? Yeah, I know. It's embarrassing. There are a few of those that are still, unfortunately, bobbing around. Uh, but that one, you know, it just it just never worked. And we're 20 years in and the spectrum's never come to a conduct constructive endpoint. It also reflected sort of a different era of spectrum management, albeit a, a more progressive. Well, anyway, albeit one that was moving in a more progressive direction. All that is to say, I think CVDEX, for example, does present some interesting opportunities there. I do understand the needs of the automotive community potentially have a home, which I think is a little bit unique because of the nature, the ubiquitous nature of the industry. I'm not sure. It's not obvious to me that the normal market would work as well for a vehicular safety ban, but, but maybe that's a debate for their time. I think the larger question that you raise is a good one, which is when do we decide which spectrum goes where as between unlicensed and licensed? There has been a consensus that has emerged with you know debate on the edges that we are predominantly a licensed first country and that we 
create opportunities for unlicensed, but that is not sort of quote unquote entitled to the same amount of spectrum as licensed is. Some of that is the bias associated, I think, with the treasury. Some of it's the nature of development. I think we, I think the licensed industry has a very strong track record of investment that has driven our network revolution and has made us the leaders in 4G. The unlicensed community has filled a role just as, as I tell my students, just as parks and roads fill a, a role alongside private property, so too does unlicensed fill a role amongst license spectrum. But I think at the end of the day, a license is still a primary driver for where we are, and it'll still continue to uh, earn the lion's share of the spectrum attention as it becomes, as, as spectrum is converted to new uses. Do you think this proceeding, even though, of course, we don't know how any of it's really going to turn out, represents sort of a detente between licensed and unlicensed, where they just agreed, okay, this 300 megahertz is going to be licensed, and the 75 megahertz, well, what would be 75, but 45 megahertz over here is unlicensed, and that's going to be the way it is? No, I think we're going to constantly have this conversation. No I mean, much as we did it, <laughs> you know, much as we did the incentive auction context, I think every time there's a new spectrum frontier opened up, there's going to be a conversation about which model is the best fit for what it is. And I do think there, well, anyway, and I think there's going to be a mix and there'll continue to be a mix and no, we're not, it's not going to be over. So David Rettel, who was, the, you know, the, who was head of NTIA, gave a speech just before he resigned where he said, we, we have to stop looking at spectrum piecemeal which sort of seems to be what you said mm-hmm. um, as, we, as we started. Are we breaking things down into even smaller pieces of this piecemeal approach with um, agencies now getting involved? DOT is involved in the automakers, yeah. in the auto spectrum, what we call the auto spectrum. And now there's FERC, I guess, um, maybe getting involved in the six gigahertz. Electric utilities care about it. Are we becoming even more fragmented on spectrum policy? I hope not. It has not been a particularly strong period for the relationship between the executive branch and the FCC when it comes to spectrum management. Mm -hmm. That is unfortunate. It's not good for the country. And it's important that we try to find a solution that allows each to serve their constituencies while still moving the national interest forward. And I do think that it has been not good for anyone when those fissures are exposed in a public setting. So let's start with that. Second, I do think there is a need that has been identified by administrations of both uh, parties over the years for a national spectrum strategy that lends some predictability to what we're doing three to five years out and that is a more comprehensive view of these puts and takes like the one you just Mm -hmm. described between licensed and unlicensed. I serve on the Commerce Department Spectrum Management Advisory Committee. One of the things we've been thinking about is, you know, so what could that look like? I am a fan of trying to do something that's three to five years out. I think part of that will need to be something that more systematically addresses the interaction between what is now the IRAC, the Interdepartment Radio Advisory Committee, and the FCC on these issues of shared jurisdiction because they're not going away. We're constantly going to have the conversation about spectrum that is shared between federal and non-federal users. And the country will be better off if we find a more predictable and fast way of resolving these issues. And and whether it's the dockets you've described or it's Legato or something else, you know, there is no shortage of examples of places where these tensions have come to the fore and it would be better if we can figure out a more systematic way to deal with them. You you mentioned Iraq and that sort of raises the point about how different little known institutions can affect spectrum policy. And and, um, we're going to come back to that and Sarah, maybe we'll ask something about that because you've been thinking about it. A lot, but are are you saying that you would be in favor of something like a national spectrum plan? Mm-hmm. I am saying that. Uh-huh. 
What would it look like? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would have this three to five year time horizon. It would identify bands that are going to be repurposed. It would give ideally some sort of auction schedule. I'm not saying it would tie, well, ideally maybe it would tie their hands. It would give predictability to what spectrum is coming on the market, what spectrum changes are being had, et cetera. Was the National Broadband Plan section on spectrum like a, a, I mean, it's, it's dated, um, yeah. but a, a first, that kind of approach here, in that case, 500 yeah. megahertz. I mean, you, get, you can point to very, there have been multiple efforts to try and pull something like this in together. So sure, that's one, that's one place to look. Sarah, do you want to ask about the... Yeah, institutionally, like what can CSMAC do to, to push that? forward, or is it more the OSTP office, or is it NTIA? Well, I mean, one of the big problems is no one has authority to do it, right? Because at the end of the day, you have the SEC as an independent agency, and you have the administration, and you know they can't tell each other what to do. Ultimately, Congress would have to figure out what that would look like. I, I think you can do a fair amount cooperatively. You know, there are there is this system whereby NTIA, the, chair, the head of NTIA and the chairman of the FCC meet periodically to coordinate their activities together. I think you could pull that, make that cooperation stronger and try to develop something like this. And that might be a starting point, but you're right. There's no real, there's no obvious center of power that could drive it towards that result. So let's move a little bit. Let's, um, let's, let's advertise a little bit for Wilkinson Parker. No, no, anything but that. <laughs> um, how did Wilkinson Barker become such an important part of the, of the telecom policy world. How did this happen? Okay, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that question. Uh, I <laughs> yeah, will say, you wanna, you thank you. <laughs> I will say that the firm has been around a long time. It's been around since the fifties. Uh, we have had a long tradition of an FCC practice. Former FCC chairman, Rosal Hyde. We have a conference room here dedicated to him. Was here for 20 years from 1970 to 1990. He was an FCC chairman for two presidents and of different parties. He began at the Federal Radio Commission and then proceeded through being a commissioner and then served, as I said, two different presidents as chairman. So we've been around in this space for a very long time, and I'm, I'm honored to follow in the footsteps of some really tremendous practitioners. And it's been it's been really fun. It's great. And, and we try to, you know, that, that Rosal's, I guess, method of operating and, and being bipartisan and trying to solve problems is one that has been a part of the firm for the, its entire life. And I think Mr. Wilkinson... Mr. Parker and Mr. Nauer are all this, we're all of a similar ilk. So, well, let me ask a question that's a little bit less of a softball. So, still, <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be hard to be less of a softball than why are you so terrific? But, yes, go ahead, Scott. Maybe um, we can say how great you are for a second. We can do that next. Yeah, right. You also, you, you, you're part of Silicon Flatirons. Um, yes. And you've taught for them. Uh, how do you get students interested in this space? Um, we found, at least among economists, uh, which is different from the students at Silicon Flatirons, that there's less interest in, you know, telecom as, a, as an area. It used to be, you know, it used to be the thing to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we'd still like to encourage students to be interested in this again and, and to continue work on it. Um, but uh, it's not like it's you know, not like in its heyday. Is that true among students? I mean, there's a little bit of selection because you're going to find the students who are interested are coming to you. Right. How do you keep the pipeline flowing? So uh, I've been teaching uh, two places. I teach at Catholic University. I've been there almost 20 years, and I've been at Colorado for about 15, as you alluded to. At Catholic for the last 10 plus years, I've been teaching with Rosemary Harold, who's at the Enforcement Bureau Chief and doing a great job now. In Colorado, I team teach with Dale Hatfield, 
an inspection management course. In both cases, the schools have very, very strong traditions of, of leadership in our space. Uh, Harvey Zuckman at Catholic and Phil Weiser at Colorado were trailblazers in their field in setting up these institutes. Both have a strong history of alumni. Uh, you mentioned David Reddle. He's an alum of, of the Catholic program, as is Brendan Carr, as is Kathleen Abernathy, as is Kathleen Ham. You know, there's a long tradition there. And similarly, at, at Colorado, you see a, a rising generation of, of great stars like Travis Lippman and Commissioner Rosenworcel's office. So both all these programs have, have really started to create communities around these issues. And I think that strong communities with inspiring leaders and strong values attract students. And I think uh, that's what's happened. And we have both programs are in great shape. The Colorado program brings uh, about 15 or 20 students here each summer to serve as Hatfield scholars and work in various institutions around town, uh, mostly government, but a lot of nonprofits, et cetera. Colorado, uh, at Catholic, uh, this year I have 10 students. They're all interning around town and very interested in these programs and stuff. So it's a great tradition to be associated with. And I do think that in both cases, the hands-on component, which has become all the rage in the law schools these days, has been a long-time feature of both programs. And I think that really captures students' imaginations is getting them out into the field and working in these, whether it's government or a law firm or a company, gives them the kind of hands-on experience that starts to get them passionate. Let's go back to telecom policy for, for a minute. Sure. What do you think is the reality of 5G? How much of it is hype? How much of it is real? What have we actually seen so far? And among the build-outs that we've seen, what do you think we've learned? I, I haven't seen any kind of lessons learned yet, either from the policy or the engineering side. And not having seen it on the engineering side might just be my own ignorance. But. Well, and I might share your ignorance on the engineering side. From a policy perspective, I think the job of the spectrum regulator, um, because we don't regulate the technology, right? We are The role of government here is to, in my mind at least, make spectrum available for the highest and best use that the service providers can find. And whether that's 5G or it's going to be 6G or what have you, I don't, I don't know how important that is, but I do know that it's important to give the, the engine fuel to run. And I don't know if it's going to go as fast as they say, maybe it'll go faster, maybe it'll go slower, but I don't know that we're ever going to be worse off for having given them the fuel. And one of the things we've done in this country, which has not been true around the world, is that we have not said, this fuel will be used for 2G, this fuel will be used for 3 You know, We have never been part of technology mandates. We've always let the industry drive it. And I think that will serve us well in 5G and beyond. So, I, I, you know, I, I believe in the technology. I think I'm excited about what it's going to do, especially for economic growth. But, I, you know, whether or not, it, you know, the... This widget's going to work the right way at the right time. I, I'm not the right guy. Well, what do you think? That what do you think the biggest policy or regulatory barriers are to whatever the market would want 5G to become? Oh. Aside from spectrum, well, I think it's spectrum and infrastructure. I don't know that it's that much more complicated than those two things. Infrastructure challenges are real, and I think they are new, which in some ways makes them harder. On the spectrum side, you know, we've been to this rodeo before. We've been repurposing spectrum. Well depending on how you think about it. We've been repurposing spectrum away from less valuable uses for a long time, in part because the country had a lot of legacy uses before we got to wireless broadband. So we've been on that road for a while. On the infrastructure side, the, the nature of the networks is changing so fundamentally, and the density of the deployments is so much greater that that's just going to be a much harder political problem, both in the NIMBY, the not-my-backyard component of it, 
but, but the economics also, they're both um, extremely complicated for these densified networks. The commission has been focused on that issue, as have many states. I think we're 26 states that passed laws to facilitate uh, small cell deployment, but there's a lot left to do. Do you think federal preemption is um, of, of things like pole attachments and so on is is only feasible way forward? Well, I think it's the best way forward. I, I think that the it makes no sense to me that a wireless carrier can't put up a small cell without going through tribal, environmental, historic preservation review and paying the city a bunch of money when I can put up a basketball net it's the same size or smaller and do none of those things. I'm pretty I'm you know, sure you can do that in my town. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. But uh, we can't do much in Tongue Park. But, but, you know, if, if we're really taking, I don't mean to suggest in any way, shape, or form, the historic preservation and environmental review are not important. They are. But I, I think we have to have some perspective about when it is when it matters and when it doesn't. And I think that the notion that we need to have that kind of review for small cells, it's a legacy notion that should be put to bed. One of the changes in the market structure, at least in, in wireless, uh, and I guess we, I shouldn't say a change of market structure. We don't know whether this will be. So the T-Mobile Sprint merger is the, is the big, biggest thing. But you've also got now cable companies offering, and Google uh, offering MVNOs. So with the cable companies, it's part of you know a, a quad play or a different kind of triple play as people don't want their home phones anymore. And Google's offering its own service, Google Fi. Is that going to matter? Is that going to make a difference to the market? Oh, I think, you know, other countries, other markets have had more MVNOs. Some have had less. Mm -hmm. I, if there, if, if someone can cut a deal with a carer and figure out a way to offer a service that distinguishes them from others, more power to them. I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how it all lands in terms of shaping the market, but I think the development of MVNOs is great and it illustrates how competitive the market is. Yeah. I mean, I, first, I don't know what I think about the you know, cables, wireless strategy. I'm glad that they that they're experimenting with it and they should keep trying things because that's what we want people to be doing. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to know how it's all going to... How about satellite? So do you think the low-Earth orbit satellites will be another competitive force for low-latency connectivity? Will so, we have mobility with our low-Earth orbit? One of the things I love about our space is, is that, which is the idea that you never know where the next platform is going to come from. You never know how it's going to disrupt the market. You know, Satellite changed everything about video. The DBS providers changed forever what the offerings were, how competitive they were, all those things. Satellite has played a role in the in the fixed broadband market for many people. You know, whether or not they can break into that next layer, you know, we've talked, we've we've heard about it before. The technology at various times has kind of gotten outpaced by the terrestrial guys. Maybe this time it's gonna be different. Maybe it's gonna be in some parts of the world that's gonna be the most compelling proposition. You know, we certainly have seen the rest of the world hop over the United States by never deploying a wired network, right, uh, and going straight to wireless. Maybe, maybe there are going to be parts of the world that hop over the wireless network and go straight to satellite and, and save all those infrastructure costs that a lot of other countries have had to invest in it. So I think it's terrific. It's great for the sector. I have a lot of my students who are very energized by space as, a, as an area of study, and I, I think it's great for the country. And it's also excellent. The United States has been a real leader in satellite. This administration has been very committed to that leadership, and I think it's very much to their credit. How do you think? How well do you think these new companies like SpaceX will know how to navigate the regulatory landscape? 
I'm yeah, sure they'll do fine. They've got a lot of good people <laughs> in those companies, and they'll do fine. And I do think, especially in satellite, it's very important that the U.S. take a leadership role globally on behalf of some of those companies. I think that's an area where we really need to focus our attention, so I think that's really important. I don't know. I wonder. I mean, one would have thought that about the tech companies, too, the big tech companies. And it's been a big learning curve for them. I mean, not FCC necessarily, but... They had a good long run, they, I would, they, I would they say. That is true. So I, I yes, wouldn't... good point. Yes. <laughs> it has been rockier as of late, it appears. Yeah. So you think astronomers who now complain about those trains of satellite blocking their views, you think they'll figure all that out. I love my radio astronomer friends, <laughs> but, it, but they, yes, I'm, I think they'll figure it all out. I'm just going to go with that. Thank you guys very much. We really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate having you. Absolutely.